Glad to have you with us today and invite you to open your Bibles in Matthew 6. To Matthew 6, it is a blessing on this cold day outside to be able to worship in comfort and peace. It is a blessing of which we're not worthy. And may you find the presence of God in this place and the comfort that God gives through His people. May you find that as a place of warmth in the midst of our cold world. May it be true literally and figuratively. In Matthew 6, our lesson today is going to begin focusing on verse 7. But let's begin reading with verse 5 that we dealt with last week. 5 through 15. When you pray, you're not to be like hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners. So that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you. They have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room and close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what He's done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from evil. Now you notice right here. In most of your Bible, there, most of your translations, there are some kind of brackets which says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The question as to whether that's in the best manuscripts. Verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is a passage that many of you know well. This is a passage that some in the world know rather well. And if we look at these familiar words, we need to see what they teach us about God. What God is seeking to teach us and how we should live in light of these words. We want to see all of this. But I want you to begin this morning by reading verses 5 and 6 because I want you to notice the similarity between verses 5 and 6 and verses 7 and 8. As Jesus is teaching about prayer, He begins both these sections, verse 5 and verse 7, by telling us how not to pray. And then He tells us 
something about how to pray. He tells us not to pray as the hypocrites who love the attention of men and are much more concerned about catching men's eyes than they are God's eyes. Don't be like that. But enter your closet and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What he's warning against in verses 7 and 8 is different. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the Gentiles who use meaningless repetition and think they will be heard because of their many words. Is this condemning long prayers? Jesus prayed all night in Luke 6, 12. Is this condemning persistent prayer? Jesus encouraged that. In Luke 18, saying that we should always pray and not give up. Is this condemning making the same request more than once? Jesus prayed three times. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't think Jesus is condemning any of these things. I think Jesus is showing us That the effectiveness of prayer is not dependent upon our eloquence or upon the quantity of our words. And that prayer isn't getting the attention of a reluctant God. But God is more ready to answer than we are to pray. As Isaiah 65 and verse 24 states, before they call, I will answer. God hears and God answers in powerful ways. And we are reminded that our Father knows what we need before we ask Him. I just broke down the prayer in the slides that follow. And again, they're words that you're familiar with. And many more passages than we gave could be added. But Jesus said, pray in this way. And by the way, there's an example in early Christian literature from less than a hundred years after this. Where Christians were encouraged to pray this prayer three times a day. I don't know, and there's question among those who who study that type of literature. Was it a statement to pray this exact prayer or simply to use it as a model of prayer? I think Jesus is teaching us a model of prayer. He's teaching us a prayer that he doesn't necessarily need. And what I mean by that is Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. Obviously, Jesus doesn't need that particular prayer, does he? He's teaching us how to pray. As a matter of fact, in Luke 11, this came because one of the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray, which I find in itself interesting. He's the greatest teacher that ever lived and the greatest preacher that ever lived. But there's no record of the disciples Coming up to him and saying, teach us to preach or teach us to teach. But they do say, teach us to pray. 
God, this is appalling. But it rings true to my experience. And it's easier to teach. And it's easier to preach. Than it is to pray. But Jesus says, pray in this way. Our Father in heaven. Our Father. Now again, this may show Jesus' concession to us. Remember what he said to Mary in John 20, verse 17? I must ascend to your God and to my God, to your Father and my Father. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. And I believe that here in the parallel passage is the only time Jesus speaks of God as our Father. If I'm wrong on that, you can tell me. Our Father, who is in heaven, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, we're going to talk in a moment about what this prayer tells us about who God is. But do you see right in those brief words that we have uttered, That there is a statement to us about the transcendence of God. And by that I mean God is so much greater than we are. And so far above us He is in heaven. And yet His eminence. He is close to us. He is our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed, holy, sanctified, be your name. God is awesomely holy, so much that the angels before him had to cover their eyes in Isaiah 6. And yet, his love is indescribable. He is our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Or holy is your name. We encourage you to take note of that Isaiah 29, verse 23. We'll try to come back to that in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, several other passages that we throw up later. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed. Be your name. Your kingdom come. John had preached in Matthew 3, 2. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached the same message in Matthew 4, in verse 17. When Jesus sends out the apostles of the limited commission, they'll speak the same. In Matthew 10, in verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is going to make a dramatic change in human history. The term kingdom sometimes refers to the rule and reign of God. That's the primary sense. In Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, the term kingdom is used in parallelism with the term reign and the term throne. The kingdom is God's rule and God's reign. And the kingdom in a secondary sense is those who submit to that rule or the territory over which He rules 
We could spend a whole lesson just on that request. But your kingdom come. Your will be done. And maybe in this particular prayer, that phrase, your kingdom come, is to some degree explained by the phrase before it and the phrase after it. Hallowed be your name, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. All of those are intimately tied in Psalm 40 verse 8. I delight to do your will, O God. I delight to do your will. And this is a prayer that the earth be filled with people who delight to do thy will. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord willing, and in your future, we're going to see later in this sermon, Jesus said, don't worry about what you eat or what you drink. Don't worry about it. That doesn't mean don't worry about it. <coughs> Give us this day our daily bread. Are you praying that? Or are you assuming that? Some people in the world may live in desperate conditions and do live in desperate conditions where they wake up with a big question mark wondering about where their daily bread is coming from. The danger that we face in our affluent world is to forget that God is the source of all things. And He teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. He first deals with God's glory, with your name, with your kingdom, with your glory. And now He begins to deal with requests for us. Give us this day our daily bread. I find it interesting here that, that the request is not for the finest of foods, but it's for daily bread. The most common form of sustenance. Proverbs 30 tells us, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with bread that is sufficient for me. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This idea is going to come back up in verses 14 and 15. It is the only item of the prayer that is revisited by Jesus after the prayer when He tells us that if we forgive others, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. The way God has treated us needs to influence our treatment of one another. But, but really, this isn't the only place in the Sermon on the Mount we read this. 
In Matthew 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, you will be judged by the measure, the standard by which you measure others. So it's a common theme in this sermon. But right now, we are reminded that just as we are dependent upon God for every bite of food that enters our mouth, we are dependent upon our God, desperately dependent for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Sin is viewed as debts. Now the same word or the same idea, and the word is is transgressions in verses fourteen and fifteen. In the parallel passage in Luke eleven three is the word sin, sin, transgression, death, all the same. But one of the pictures of sin is that it is a crushing debt that we can't pay. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from evil. After a petition for forgiveness of our past wrongs in verse 12, there is a plea for protection from future wrongs in verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation. And maybe that is just explained by the next phrase. Deliver us, deliver us from evil. May God deliver us from sin, temptation, and from Satan. Some of your translations may have in verse 13, deliver us from the evil one. And that is legitimate. The doxology stated here, yours is the kingdom and the glory, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Very similar to words found in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 in verse 11, ascribing these things to God. What does the prayer teach us? What does the prayer teach us about who God is? What does it tell us about? Both in verse 8 and verse 9, God is described as your Father. Or in verse 9, our Father who is in heaven. The idea of God as our Father in heaven is only used about 20 times in the Gospel of Matthew. But over half of those occur in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is very concentrated in its emphasis on God as our Father. Uh, Look at Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 5, verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
As I stated, we could go on many more times. We saw that idea in 6.1, in 6.4, in 6.6 last week, and beyond that. God is our Father. Now what does that convey to you? I have talked to a few people in my life for whom that image conjures up negative feelings. Because their father and their mother mistreated them and were legitimately abusive to them. If that be your case, all I would say is do not let the sins of man distract you from the glory of God. If your mother and your father didn't live up to the ideal, there is a God who does. Our Father who is in heaven, He lives up to this ideal. He is a God that loves us. I I want to tell you what that idea conveys to you. That idea conveys to me love, compassion, mercy. Some of you older people may remember the name Alan Wilder. A basketball coach at Marquette. Al McGuire coached his son. At Marquette. He said a player came up to him one day after practice. And said, listen. Your son's getting to play. A lot more than I. And it's not fair. I'm just as good as he is. McGuire said, that's right. You are as good as he is. And, but if you're going to play more than he is, you better be a lot better because he's my son and I love him. And if you're both equal, he's going to be out there and you're not. <laughs> I bet you can relate to that. The idea of God's Father shows us love, compassion. Mercy and access. Access to God. We know our children have access to us at times and places that others don't. And we welcome them when we may say to others, let's get back to this tomorrow. God is our Father. Mercy, compassion, love, and access combined with the fact that He is also holy, our Father, who 
is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. This is what Isaiah 57 verse 15 says. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I will dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. God is high. God is exalted. God's name is holy. God dwells on a high and holy place. But the God who is so far above us is willing to dwell with the lowly and the contrite. God is in heaven. He is so far above us, which makes His accessibility to us even more incredible. Ecclesiastes 5.2 emphasized that because God is in heaven in your own earth, let your words be few, be me, reverent in His presence. But at the same time, He is our Father. We come to Him knowing His holiness and we come to Him knowing His love, knowing that He is ready to answer our prayers before we pray them. As Isaiah 56, 65, verse 24 stated. God is a God who is. Our Father, God is a God who is holy. God is a God who is in heaven. God is a God who is quick and anxious to forgive. And Jesus told us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. God is willing and anxious to forgive. More willing to forgive, as Psalm 32 shows us, than we are to repent. And confess, God is merciful, God is gracious, God is forgiving. I'll tell you something else. And we can go on longer, and it always the key point in Scripture is what it teaches us about God. So, not trying to pass on quickly from this point. Who God is is emphasized in this particular prayer. But I also want to say something else about God that's going to lead us to our next point. Look at that statement in verse 8. In verse 8, the Bible says, Do not be like them, like the Gentiles, who think they'll be heard for their many words. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows what you need before you pray. Look at verse 32 of Matthew 6. For Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. What you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Twice in this chapter, the omniscience of God is emphasized. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do we even need to pray? When God already knows what we're thinking. When God knows what we need, why do we need to pray? What's the point of prayer?
Prayer is powerful. Israel would have been destroyed in the wilderness had not Moses prayed and stood in the gap. Psalm 106, verse 23. God sends Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, Because you prayed, I'm going to bring judgment on Assyria. Isaiah 37, verses 21 and 22. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. But why do we need to pray? Understanding everything I've just said and making sure... That you understand what I'm about to say with this qualification. Could it be that God calls us to pray for our good? After all, this is what God told Israel in Deuteronomy 6 verse 24. God commanded us to observe all these statutes... To fear the Lord our God for our good always. The things that God is telling us are also for our good. And the God who knows we need our bread before we pray for it. And a God who knows our other needs before we ask them. Ask for these. Does that mean God never supplies it without us asking? Now we know He does. We know He does. But as we pray to Him, give us this day our daily bread. And then when that bread is presented before us, we give thanks to God. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. through 5. Paul was on board before a group of unbelievers in Acts 27. And they hadn't eaten for 14 days before they start to eat. He gives thanks to God before them all. Acts 27 in verse 35. Showing that all things are from Him. When we pray to Him, begging Him to give us this day what we need. When we thank Him as it's then set before us. Because He has given us what we need. It is teaching us dependence upon Him. Just like Israel walked out in the wilderness in the bare in wilderness every day and they walk out six days a week anyway and there is manna a plenty all over the ground for each to take as much as he needs. God was teaching them, Deuteronomy 8 verses 2 and 3 says, to trust in him, dependence upon him for each day as God brought the manna anew every morning or six days a week in the seventh, sixth day, they spared it over to the seventh. God was teaching dependence upon him right after that account in the manna in Exodus chapter 16 and some of these things have been involved in daily reading recently you remember in Acts in, 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 it's not Acts I mean Exodus but Exodus 16 and Exodus 17 in Exodus 17 Amalek attacks the people of Israel And you remember when Amalek attacks the people of Israel and Moses raises his hands, Israel prevails. When he lets down his hands, then Israel is defeated. Is that magical? Is that teaching us belief in in magic? No. 
Raising your hand was often the posture of prayer. As Moses talks about going into prayer, going to prayer with raising his hands before God in Exodus 9, 29. God was giving a dramatic visual display that the people are dependent upon Him. And when they are dependent upon Him, as Moses raised hands signify, they are victorious. When they let down that dependence, they are defeated. God is giving a dramatic visual display of the importance of our dependence upon Him. We are dependent upon Him for every bite of food we eat. Whether we live in the poorest nation on earth or whether we live in the most affluent zip code in America, we are dependent upon Him for everything. And we're dependent upon Him for forgiveness for every sin. Whether it be the horrific sins of a Jeffrey Dahmer who murders and cannibalizes others, or whether it be the secret failures of believers that wouldn't raise an eyebrow in shock from the world. We are dependent upon Him for forgiveness from everyone. And Jesus, who at the beginning of the Gospel it is said, of whom it is said, He has come to save His people from their sins, in Matthew one twenty one, And at the end of the gospel, he says, I pour out my blood which is for me for the remission of sins. In Matthew 26 verse 28. As from the beginning to the end of Matthew, the emphasis is on how Jesus brings forgiveness. And we are dependent upon him for a right relationship with God. And as we pray, it is power. It is dramatic. It is a way to teach us dependence upon Him. Prayer teaches us who God is. Prayer teaches us dependence upon Him. How do we live in light of this prayer? This prayer teaches us Submission to Him. For example, the prayer, Hallowed be your name. God is already and always will be holy, whether we request it or not. But there is power in us requesting it. For Jesus told us to do so. But But in Isaiah 29, verse 23, listen to these words. They will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. You may have missed that. 
But in Isaiah 29, verse 23, the phrase, sanctifying my name, sanctifying the Holy One of Jacob, and standing in awe of the God of Israel are all used in parallelism. If we are going to pray, glorify your name, sanctify your name, may your name be holy. We need to stand in awe of God. To stand in awe of Him. And to live in a way that will not cause His name to be blasphemed. In Isaiah 52, 5, in Ezekiel 36, verses 20 to 23, God says because of the sins of the people that His name was blasphemed among the nations all day. As we pray, Lord, sanctify Your name. We want to submit to Him in a way that is consistent with that prayer. And maybe no better, no place illustrates this more in the prayer than that request, forgive us of our debts. For Jesus comments on that explicitly. God's forgiveness of us is revealed. In our willingness to forgive others, God's treatment of us reflects itself in how we're willing to forgive others. What we believe about forgiveness and grace is demonstrated in how we treat others. A preacher told me once that he has had, as many of us have had, questions and even sometimes his own questions from people. How can I forgive this person who did me wrong? He said he went to Sierra Leone and preached. That nation is now predominantly an Islamic nation, about 65 to 70%. Somewhere close to 30% or so would identify themselves as Christians. But, but right now, thankfully to God, there is a lot of religious freedom in that nation. As um, a couple of dedicated young men, they and Sean preaching in here, show. But right now, there's much religious freedom. But there was a civil war in the past that came about, some by the influence of outsiders to the nation. And he said, most every time you're treating with good people, you see some evidence of the effects of that war. You have a person, for example, 
who's missing an arm or missing a leg. And you ask, how can I forgive those who've done this wrong to me? The preacher said, all of a sudden, that put every kind of complaint I had against brethren. And every kind of complaint I heard brethren in America make about each other seemed pretty small. What we believe about forgiveness will be shown in how we treat each other. The prayer tells us who God is. It tells us that God is wanting to create a people who depend and rely upon Him. And we live the way we do in light of who He is. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven. Oh Lord, may we come into your presence with trembling, knowing how awesome you are. But we come with joy, knowing how much you love us. Our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. May we live in a way that reflects who you are and does not cause your holy name to be blasphemed, but causes it to be honored. But we pray that peoples of all places might treat your name as holy and reverent. That your truth might grow and prevail. That your kingdom may increase and spread. And that those who surrender to you and do your will. May be on all faces of the globe. You are great, O God, beyond our greatest ability to conceive or relate it to you, relate of you, how great you are. And O our Father in heaven, we come to you as beggars, asking that you provide us our daily bread. We know, O Lord, you have done this every day of our existence. Many Of those days, we never even bothered to ask you before or to thank you afterwards. Forgive us, God, for taking your gifts and refusing to praise you, the giver.
Give us each day what we need. And Lord, we again ask with fear and trembling. Don't give us riches nor poverty. Give us food that is sufficient for us. Forgive us for our wrong. For all our lives. For our lives, the lives of all of us, O Lord. Their wrongs, their failures, their sins that are embarrassing to us. That only you can take away. Please forgive us. And Lord, the same mercy you've shown us, may we show to others. As the disciples said in such a context, increase our faith, Lord. And Lord, we do pray you keep us from wrong and keep us from sin. Lead us to not into temptation. But when the day of trial or the day of difficulty comes, may we trust in you. And may you hold us up so that we may stand. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For God, you created all. And you will end all. You are the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. To you, O God, belongs all the glory and the dominion and praise. In Jesus we pray. Amen. God is seeking you before you're seeking Him. The biblical story can be summed up pretty well in the fact that man is running away from God and God is seeking to bring him into a right relationship with Him. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? And rose again from the dead. Do you believe that? Are you willing to turn from your sins on the basis of that? To repent. To humble yourselves before God. To acknowledge Him. And to be baptized. We invite you to come if you want to. As we stand and sing.